Well, good evening. It is finally good to see people here <laughs> for church. Our Awana kids uh, were here earlier. Uh, they're still here in the building uh, doing all of their activities. Uh, so you be in prayer for them tonight as well as our youth. But want to welcome those of you who are joining us online there. If you're on Facebook, on YouTube, on Twitter, be sure to like, to heart, to share uh, on any one of those platforms. Uh, retweet us also and subscribe there. Uh, that way you'll and click that little notification bell on YouTube. You'll get that those notifications uh, when we go live. So be sure to do all of that. Uh, and then also, if you have access to the church website there, uh, go to the church website at highlandbaptistchurch.com. It's under the info tab there that you can download the worship bulletin for this week, which <laughs> uh, was nobody was here to get this past Sunday. Uh, so be sure to get that downloaded. There are some upcoming things uh, that are in there, so be sure to do that. Uh, as well as we've got our children's worship bulletins that went along with this past Sunday's uh, message this past Sunday morning uh, as we streamed uh, live there uh, on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, uh, all those. And then also don't forget under that info tab is where you can download tonight's prayer list. So be sure to get that downloaded if you need those in person. They're on the fronts of the pews up here on the sides, but be sure to get that. We'll go over that uh, in just a few moments. Uh, while you're there on our church website, also if you'll go to the far right-hand side, uh, click the Give Online tab there. You can do your uh, regular online giving there for your regular online offering as well as uh, the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. So be sure to do uh, both of those. And uh, also want to encourage you uh, to be praying for individuals that you might know that don't know Christ as their Lord and Savior. We want to encourage you to pick up one of the cards here in front of the pew if you've not done that pulpit, if you've not done that yet. Uh, on the blue part up here on the top on the back, you'll write the person's name. Uh, you'll just place it in the offering plate and later we'll put those on the cross over here to my right uh, as a reminder to be praying for those individuals, but we're going to be sharing uh, some of those names randomly uh, for you to be able to pray for uh, those individuals, for other people on behalf of them also. So you'll be praying for them, uh, praying for your friend, and there'll be others who'll be praying for your friend. And then on the bottom part of this is a bookmark on the back of it uh, is uh, where you can write that person's name. And then also you've got uh, day 1 through 30, uh, to pray through the scriptures for uh, those individuals and for their salvation. So I want to encourage you uh, to take the time to do that as we seek to reach our one for Christ uh, throughout this coming year. So good to say this. Brother Mike, come and lead us in our hymn. <laughs> Take your hymnals and let's turn to 334 and let's sing the three verses of Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God. Born of the Spirit, washed in His blood. This is my story, this is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story, this is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Perfect submission, perfect delight. Visions of rapture now burst on my sight. Angels descending bring from above. Echoes of mercy, whispers of love. This is my story. 
Hopefully you've had an opportunity to get your prayer list downloaded. Uh, they're from the website under the info tab. So uh, if you have that, uh, maybe you've got it there on your device. Maybe you've printed it out. If you're here in person, hopefully you've gotten one uh, from up here on the front pew. Uh, we do just want to continue to remind you to be praying for uh, each of these individuals and uh, praying for God's uh, hand upon them. Uh, we're not going to go through everybody in the list tonight. Uh, but we are going to uh, look at some of these here in about the, the last portion there, last 10 or so of each uh, one of these sides, because that's where we tend to put the most current uh, individuals who we've added to the prayer list. Uh, so as we come to individuals, I'll share anything that I may know uh, about any of these. Um, so uh, do continue to remember Rick German recovering from his surgery uh, back in December. Uh, Brother Doubt, Jack Doubt, he's here with us tonight, but Okay. So do just continue to remember Brother Jack as he's waiting on those results. Uh, he did say there that his leukemia does seem to be mild, but he does have some heart issues, wearing a monitor there too, and some things that will be going on with that. So keep him in your prayers. Remember Brian Tate with all of his issues that he has continuing on. Uh, Brother Tony Rogers is doing great uh, from his uh, recovery from his surgery. Uh, Brother Jimmy Marlowe is doing pretty good also. Uh, Robert Everett has still got a few more weeks of his therapy from his double uh, knee replacement surgery, but when I talked to Gala a uh, week before last, uh, he was progressing along fairly well, so we praise the Lord for that. Do continue to remember Cindy Jordan, as well as Wade Hall uh, and their situations, and then just to mention one other that I know of an update on, uh, George Duncan, uh, he came by yesterday, I believe it was, uh, to the church, and so just, he's doing, said, the thing he always says, uh, <laughs> doing better than he deserves, <laughs> so, another day in paradise. <laughs> Uh, he, he's, he is doing pretty good. He was driving, uh, and so, but do keep him in your prayers as uh, he does have his ongoing medical issues that hinders him from being with us uh, in person. 
Uh, any others on our Highland Baptist Church family we need to update that you might want to share with us tonight or others that we might need to add? And I'm there, I didn't say this earlier, but if you need to add those online, be sure to do that on Facebook. That's where we'll watch here uh, live to add any of those requests on Facebook. Okay, so Donna Adcock should have had her last treatment uh, for her breast cancer, so keep her in your prayers. Because they'll probably be seeking what to do next. Any others? Okay, on our friends and family side, uh, let me just go up to about Laura Hendricks. Uh, if there's any others above, we'll get those here in just a moment that you can mention uh, to us also. But remember Laura Hendricks, who is the daughter of Becky Moffat, uh, with her cancer treatments. Uh, Sandy McKinney with family medical issues. This is one a request from Judy Stockdale. Remember Doug Gray, uh, who's recovering from his surgery. And then also uh, Andy Taylor, uh, who is Nancy Ritchie's brother. They did get moved to Florida. Uh, and so keep them uh, in your prayers. Uh, remember uh, Ricky Hereford uh, with his radiation treatments. He started those the first of the year here. So uh, keep him in your prayers as he continues to go through that. Uh, Kay Goff, who's a friend of ours over in Charlotte, North Carolina. We usually stay with her and her husband uh, when we go there for Samantha's uh, tests that she has to do in Charlotte. Uh, she has dementia. And then her husband, who was her caregiver, uh, he has colon cancer, and they're uh, doing treatments uh, on him right now. So keep both of those in your prayers. Uh, their son is taking care of their mom, uh, Kay, right now. Uh, remember also Joanne Woodson, uh, recovering from surgery. Any update? Okay, so she came through her surgery fine, goes back the end of the month for... Uh, results from the biopsy and so just continue to keep her in your prayers that things will be good there remember madison barnett uh, who has uh, ewing car sarcoma cancer uh, so keep her in your prayers and then also jeff brown who is uh, samantha's cousin uh, who is re still recovering from his triple bypass heart surgery um, i was trying to think if there was any others on this side are there any others that you may want to update Okay, and so for those of you online, this is for Janie Town, uh, who's on the friends and family side there. Uh, this is the sister of Donna Agcock. Uh, she is at home uh, now, uh, but her husband's her caregiver. His name is Gary, so keep him in your prayers. Uh, anytime uh, our caregivers, uh, they need just as much prayer as those who have the physical needs there also. Any other updates? Yes. Okay, so this is uh, to add to your list on the friends and family side there, Wendy, W-E-N-D-I, Hamblin, H-A-M-B-L-I-N, uh, who's a family connection there to Linda Hawker-Smith, who ha she has uh, stomach cancer, uh, Wendy does, so keep her in your prayers. Any other friends and family updates or additions? As I'm looking there on Facebook, I don't see any comments there. 
All right, and then let me move you over to our nursing home and assisted living list there. Mary Campbell at NHC, Peggy Eggleston at Life Care, Susie Barton at NHC, uh, Miss Bertie Davis at Brookdale. Visited with her uh, a week and a half ago, and she uh, was in good spirits, uh, doing well. Uh, so keep her in your prayers. Miss Janet Carter uh, seems to continue to, she's stable too there at MacArthur Manor. Uh, Floyd Prince and Sue Prince, who are both at Morning Point, uh, he is having a little more progressive issues, uh, so keep him in your prayers. And then I also was able to speak to Beverly Daniels earlier this week, and she is in uh, Manchester at the Manchester Rehab there. Uh, if you want to be able to visit her, just give us a call at the church office. We'll be glad to give you her room number so you can stop by to see her, or you can call her uh, on her cell phone, and she'll answer there too, hopefully. Uh, so, But she is uh, just one day at a time, is what she said, and so uh, she wanted to ask to keep her in your prayers. Uh, too. So, anybody else that we need to add? Any other updates? Any other to share? All right, I don't see anybody here or anybody online, so let's go to the Lord in prayer for these uh, that we've mentioned and the updates there, as well as any unspoken needs that you may have. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy, and thank you for the wonderful privilege we have to come before your throne of grace. Uh, knowing, Lord, that you are an awesome and a mighty God, Lord, you are a loving and a caring God. Uh, you are gracious and you are merciful uh, and at the same time. And so, Father, I pray that you would forgive us of our sin as we come into your presence. We recognize our sinfulness against your perfection. And we pray, God, that you would cleanse us with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, wash us as white as snow. And, Father, I pray that you would move in our hearts and our lives to draw us closer to you than we've ever been before, to be more faithful uh, in the kingdom work that you've called us to, to be faithful in, in making Jesus known to the people around us, uh, sharing the good news of the gospel with those that you give us opportunity to, uh, praying for our one. Uh, Father, I pray for each of these that are already on the cross uh, over here. We pray, God, that you'll be with each one of those individuals uh, to, to send people into their lives, uh, to minister to them, to share the good news of the gospel with them. Uh, Lord, I pray that uh, the individuals who shared these uh, would have opportunities to uh, pour into those individuals' lives. And Lord, we just pray that the Holy Spirit will work to draw them to faith in Jesus as their Lord and their Savior. And I pray, Father, that we would be faithful uh, to continue to do all that we need to do in the days that we are here. And Father, we just pray that as we come before you, we want to intercede on behalf of each one of these on our prayer list. <clears throat> We've mentioned uh, many, uh, Lord, who are part of our church, some of our friends and family, some of those in the nursing homes. And Father, we just pray for your healing touch to be upon each and every one of them. Lord, we pray for you to embrace them uh, in your love and your mercy. But Father, we pray also that you would shower your grace upon them as your grace is sufficient for all of our needs. And so we pray, God, for uh, you to walk with them through these valleys that they're going through. Uh, Lord, remind them in their hearts that you are their shepherd. Uh, Father, for those who have not yet trusted in, by faith in Jesus, I pray that you would use these opportunities uh, that they're going through to bring them to faith in Christ. For those who already have Christ, we pray, Lord, that you will give them strength to keep persevering, uh, to use them and their testimony and their witness to to doctors and nurses, to caregivers. Uh, Father, we pray that you would just use that testimony uh, to, to speak of your glory and your majesty and your salvation uh, to each and every one of those individuals. We pray for those, Lord, that are caregivers, and we just pray that you would give them strength 
uh, as they're taking care uh, of their loved ones. And even <clears throat> if they're those that are in the professional uh, skill there of, of doing caregiving, Father, we pray for your hand to be upon them. And Lord, we pray that you would uh, just use us as a church in whatever way that we can to come alongside each one of these and their families, uh, to be an encouragement to them, to help them in whatever ways that we can. Lord, that we would bring glory and honor to your name and that you would bring good into our lives. So Lord, be with our kids that are here tonight for Awana. Uh, we pray for your blessings upon our workers. And, and Lord, we thank you for protecting us and bringing us back safely uh, after the snowstorms. Uh, Father, we pray that you'd be with our youth who are also meeting here. And we pray, God, that you will just give them a hunger and a thirst for you and for your presence and for your word. Uh, Lord, we pray for uh, all of our missions endeavors and all the things that you have planned for us in the year to come. Lord, I pray that you would use us in a great and mighty way to make an impact for your kingdom uh, here uh, in Tullahoma, across our state and the nation and even around the world. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be able to partner with others. And so, Father, I pray that in, in doing that, we would pray for with others for our missionaries, but we would also give, Lord, to the cooperative program. Uh, each and every Sunday, a portion of our offerings goes to that. And so we pray that you would bless us, that we might be a blessing to others through our giving. And Father, we just pray that you will make this a great and prosperous year for us uh, in giving to you and to your kingdom work. Bless us tonight, Lord, as we come to study again in the book of Zechariah. We pray that you'll make it powerful, make it alive and sharper than any two-edged sword. I pray that it'll speak to our hearts. Lord, I pray for us as believers that it'll motivate us and encourage us to, to be more faithful as we know we're getting closer and closer to the return of Jesus Christ and also to the last days of our own lives. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to, to be stirred in our hearts. May you uh, give us a passion, Lord, and, and set us on fire uh, for you. Lord, I pray for uh, those though, who may be listening tonight who don't know Christ. Lord, I pray that they would hear your love and your grace and your mercy and the, the way that you have made for them to be redeemed through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And may they trust in him as their Lord and their Savior. So bless us tonight as we study your word. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen and amen. Well, take your Bibles, if you will, turn to Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah chapter 12 is where we're at tonight. And we're just going to be beginning here with verse 1 to start with. There was a young teenage boy who was standing on a sidewalk in a large city. He was waiting on the corner bus stop one evening around 6 o'clock. And the man who worked in a store on that corner came out and said, Hey, kid, uh, you, you won't catch a bus here. The last one came at 530. Well, the boy said, No. He said, The bus will come. Well, the man, he shrugged his shoulders. He left the boy standing there waiting. Well, 6.15 came, and it passed. Then 6.30 came, and it passed. And again, the man came out a little irritated, and he said, I'm, Son, I'm telling you, the bus isn't going to come. You missed it. You need to go to another stop. Well, the boy, he said, I'm sure the bus is coming. Well, the man, he turned around, went back into the store, muttering under his breath uh, that the boy could stay out there all night for all he cared. Well, as the city got darker at about 6.45 and 7 o'clock, the boy kept standing there at the bus stop. And the man in the shop, he just couldn't stand it anymore. Uh, he couldn't take it coming out another time. And he came out and he said, look, that bus is not coming. It's dangerous around here at night. You need to get home. There's a stop, he said, eight blocks up from here. That bus runs until 7.30. If you run, you can make it. Well, the boy shook his head and he said, no, 
I need to stay here. My bus is going to come any minute. Well, by that time, the man, he was exasperated. And he said, kid, I'm here every night. The last bus is always at 5.30. You've got to believe me when I say the last bus isn't. And just then, the man saw the boy begin to smile. Looking slightly past him, he heard the hiss of the hydraulic brakes. He smelled the diesel fuel of a bus pulling up behind them and beside him, opening the door right where the boy stood. The boy hopped on the bus as the man stood there amazed. And the man said, how in the world did you know the bus would come? The little boy said, well, that's easy, mister. The bus driver's my dad. <laughs> Understand this. The Bible promises us Jesus Christ is coming again. We know the bus driver's coming. We know Jesus is coming again. His second coming is mentioned repeatedly in the Old Testament. In fact, there are more prophecies about the second coming of Jesus in the Old Testament than there are about His first coming. In fact, go to the New Testament and you'll discover that all nine authors of the New Testament mention the second coming of Jesus in some way. There are people who doubt that the Lord's second coming is going to happen, but based on the Scripture, we know that Jesus Christ is coming again. So why does God's Word keep revealing over and over and over again the truth about the second coming of Jesus Christ? Well, there's many reasons. One is knowing that Jesus Christ is coming again serves to give us hope. Uh, his return reminds us of the certainty of the promises of God's Word, and it causes us to remember His faithfulness. It causes us to remember His justice uh, and the assurance of our salvation. The reality of Jesus Christ's return encourages us to be reminded of His power that works in our lives even right now. Now, the second coming reminds us also of God's love uh, for His people and that His Lordship will prevail. Moreover, the second coming reminds us that God has a plan for the ages. And even though the world may seem uh, at times like it's spinning out of control, the promise of the second coming assures us that God is still ruling, that God is still reigning over time, over history, and over eternity. Ultimately, what we need to realize, and from the passage we're going to look at tonight, is that God has everything fully under His control. All of these things are taught to us through the truth of the second coming of Jesus Christ. So in chapter 12 of Zechariah, Zechariah delivers a specific word from God about the return of Jesus Christ the second time. Uh, th throughout this passage, you're going to be able to see uh, that, that Jesus, uh, what He's going to do at the second coming, reveals who He is right now. And, and we're going to see three aspects here of the Lord's unchanging character emerging in Zechariah's prophecy of the second coming of Christ. Now, I've entitled this message, Redeemed, because that's where we're going to wind up in our third point of what Jesus is going to do in the second coming and what He's even doing right now. Uh, and so here are those three things to begin with. Number one, we see his sovereign position that he created. Look at verse 1, if you will, in chapter 12 
of Zechariah. If you don't know where Zechariah is at, find the Gospel of Matthew, and it's two books uh, before uh, Matthew. Just flip back uh, several pages and you'll come to Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 12 says this in verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel, thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. So what you see in this verse, and really this entire chapter, is that this chapter begins the second oracle in this book. If you go back to chapter 9 and verse 1, you'll read there about the first oracle. Now, we talked about it when we looked at chapter 9, what the word oracle means. It can mean to bear, to lift up. So the word carries the idea of a weighty message that's being delivered by God's messenger and laid upon the people. So it's more than just a word, a spoken word, or a declared word. It's a heavy burden, a heavy message that's being given to the people. So the oracle beginning in chapter 9 concerned Hadrach uh, and the other Gentile nations that had opposed Israel. When you come to Zechariah chapter 12, this, this burden or this oracle is laid on Israel itself. Uh, so it's foretelling particularly what's going to happen to the city of Jerusalem at the end of the ages. So you can see the relevancy today uh, of what's going on uh, in Israel uh, and Jerusalem there. And so some of that's going to bring back uh, to us as we look at here in Zechariah chapter 12. It's going to remind us of things that are going on over there even now. So before Zechariah even speaks, though, of these events that are going to happen in the future... He talks about something that happened in the past and has been continuing and has continuing implications in the present. Notice again, thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. So we see here uh, the picture of God creating and that's what he's talking about here. In verse 1, he's talking about the Lord's work as creator. And so by saying that the Lord stretched out the heavens, it means that he, he flung out into space all the stars, all the galaxies, all the planets. Everything that you see when you look up into the nighttime sky when the clouds aren't over, it's when it's not snowing. <laughs> you can see those stars and you can see those heavenly bodies up there. And, and that's what he's talking about here. Uh, he, he stretched out the heavens. He says he founded the earth or, or laying the foundations of the earth. That indicates that the Lord set the earth on a firm foundation, uh, making the solid ground that we, we plant our feet on solid. Uh, the third thing that's mentioned in this passage uh, about the Lord's creative work is very personal, though. So remember, he says he stretches out the heaven. He says in the second part that he founded the earth. And then thirdly, he says, he formed the spirit of man within him. So in other words, we go back to the very beginning of creation in the book of Genesis where he, get, he breathes his own uh, life in, and gives life to men and to women, breathes his own breath into man and brings them to life. And now in the Hebrew text, all three of those verbs stretched out laid the foundation, and formed our present tense participles. Didn't know you was getting an English lesson tonight. What in the world does that mean? Present tense participles. Well, the form of those words reminds us that God not only made everything back there in the past, in the beginning, and made us in the beginning, 
but moment by moment he still stretches out the heavens, he still makes the earth firm underneath us, and he still forms the spirit of man within us. And he continues to sustain the entire universe. He continues to uphold uh, us through his creative power. So Zechariah chapter 12 verse 1 raises a question for us. Why would God begin a prophecy concerning the future, concerning the second coming of Jesus Christ by reminding his people that he is the creator? Why go all the way back here to creation if he's going to go way over here to talk about Jesus coming again? Here's the answer. Because the foundation for everything that God calls his people to be and his people to do rests in the fact that God is the one who made us. And so because of that, you're accountable to God. That's why we're accountable to him, because God made us. Why will God one day judge the entire world? Because God made the world. It belongs to Him. We belong to Him. We didn't make ourselves. He made us. And so therefore, He is and has the sovereign, absolute right to rule over us and even to judge us. I mean, think about it. You ever bought a, a brand new shirt or maybe you bought some jeans or I don't know if they do this with ladies' blouses or whatever, uh, but I, I know sometimes I'll find in my shirts or new pair of pants, you'll find a little slip of paper, and it used to anyway, you used to, uh, that would say inspected by, and it'd have a number. Uh, a lot of times it said inspected by number seven. I don't know why they chose number seven. Uh, maybe it was because they know it's a perfect number. Uh, but when we see one of those little inspected by number seven, or whatever the number might be, it, it all, makes us think of, uh, of that shirt factory or that, that material factory at the end of the whole process of making that shirt or that pants. There's a person who's sitting there at their station, and, and when your shirt comes along across their table, they take your shirt, they hold it up, they measure it, they check all the stitching, they make sure that it's sewn, uh, the seams are all sewn right, uh, they look to see if the pattern uh, of the fabric was right, and, and if nothing was wrong with it, they take that little slip of paper from a huge stack of papers and put it in that shirt pocket or that pants pocket inspected by number seven. Use your imagination for just a moment. Could you picture a newly formed shirt or pair of pants ever saying to that inspector, Why, what right do you have to judge me? Who do you think you are? You're looking at me, you're pulling on me, you're making sure all these things are right with me. What gives you the right? Use your imagination here. I can just imagine this inspector saying, Mr. Shirt, Mr. Pants, the reason I have the right to judge you is because I am your maker. I'm your manufacturer. I made you. And because I created you, I have the right to inspect you and to decide whether or not you meet my qualifications. When the Bible tells us that God stretches out the heavens, he founds the earth, he forms the spirit of man within him, it's a reminder to us that we're accountable to somebody. We're accountable to God. He has the right to inspect us. He has the right to hold us over to his righteous standard because he made us. That's why he begins here with the creation. He wants to start out here in this second oracle to say, I made you, I formed you, 
I've made the ground that you're standing on. It's all mine. You're mine. I created you. I have the right to judge you. And so as we think about judgment, as we think about the end of the ages, we need to understand that the judgment that's going to come at the end of the age will hold every single one of us as believers and non-believers accountable to our God. Think about it. An atheist believes there is no God, and so there's no accountability. That's one of the great appeals of atheism, uh, that there's no accountability. A pantheist who believes uh, that everything is God, believes that, that what is right for me not, may not be right for you because all truth is relative. It's a subjective accountability because all of us relate to God in our own way. A, a deist believes that God created the earth and then he stepped back to leave everything in, in creation alone because the deist believes in a limited accountability before God because they think that God's not engaged with his creation. But a biblical theist, a creation theist, a Christian theist, uh, believes in an active, present creator God who has revealed himself as the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob and holds to a real responsibility on the part of the human creation being before God. Understanding that God made us, the theist believes we're accountable to God. And furthermore, a Christian theist is somebody who believes that God stepped into history through the incarnation of his son and that one day he's going to judge all of the earth against the standard of that same one person, Jesus Christ. He's not going to judge us based on Sally or Bill over here and how we met up to them. He's going to judge us based on how did we meet up to the holy righteous standard of Jesus Christ who lived a perfect sinless life. Followers of Jesus Christ uh, believe that we have a high and specific accountability to God. That's why God begins this text about Christ's return by talking about the Lord as our creator. That's his sovereign position. Secondly, we see in verse 2 down through verse 9, his surpassing power. His surpassing power. He conquers. His surpassing power. He conquers. Look at verse 2. He says, Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. And we'll just stop there for just a moment because Zechariah here begins to describe what's going to happen when the whole world comes to conquer Jerusalem in the last days. Notice the phrase that's found several times in this passage. It begins in verse 3. Verse 3 begins to say, On that day I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather Against it. So that phrase, on that day, is a phrase that's repeated over and over in chapters 12 through chapter 14. Uh, it's repeated a total of 16 times. We've talked about this before uh, in studying the biblical text. Anytime you see something repeated, whether it's in a verse, a section of a paragraph, a chapter, or even a book, over and over, and we see here in three chapters, 16 times, this phrase is repeated. Uh, it's repeated eight times in chapter 12 alone, including verse 1 that we're going to look at of chapter 13 tonight, uh, and then continuing on. That day, the day that the Bible is talking about there, is a specific event. The day that he's talking about there is the day of the battle of Armageddon. 
It's described in the scripture, the Battle of Armageddon isn't just one military fight. Instead, it's actually a war that's going to be fought on several different fronts. Uh, the war is going to be fought in the valley of Armageddon. Uh, of course, that's implied there. Uh, I've, I've been there before, uh, stood on the, the hill there called Megiddo. You look across the valley, it's a lush, green, wide, flat valley. Beautiful place. But military experts have described it as one of the earth's most perfect battlefields. One day... The Bible tells us that all of the enemies of God led by the Antichrist are going to come to wage war against Jerusalem gathering for the battle of Armageddon. So verse 3 said, On that day I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all peoples. Back in verse 2 he said, All the surrounding peoples, the siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. Uh, continue on down to verse 4. Verse 4 says, On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. But we see here that on that day is referring to the battle of Armageddon, the day that's going to culminate in the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now the Lord uses two images to describe how he's going to defeat his enemies as they come against Jerusalem. One of those is given to us back in verse 2. Back in verse 2, he said, Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering. Now, a cup that causes drunkenness is a common figure of speech among the prophets to describe God's judgment. You can do research and see that that phrase is used over and over by other prophets, uh, that he gives a cup that causes drunkenness, causes staggering. Jesus uses the same imagery of a cup when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, remember? When he's praying this prayer and he asks the Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. During the Battle of Armageddon, as the city is overwhelmed, surrounded by the enemies, God is going to cause Jerusalem, he says, to be like a drink that causes her enemies to become drunk and powerless. Then you come to verse 3, and verse 3 God promises to make Jerusalem uh, there a heavy stone for all the peoples. So in other words, it's kind of like an immovable stone that, that they're going to try uselessly to move, and, and yet it's only going to cause harm to themselves. Because notice it says uh, that all who will lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. So it's this immovable stone. Uh, Jerusalem enemy, enemies are going to tear themselves apart uh, by attempting to attack and to overthrow God's people in the holy city of Jerusalem. Now why verses 2 and 3 use poetic language, and use imagery to describe what's going to happen in Jerusalem during the Battle of Armageddon. When you read verse 4 through verse 9, the text is using literal language to describe the Battle of Armageddon as the battle moves from house to house in Jerusalem. Uh, so verse 4 shows us how God's going to confuse the enemies of that day. Uh, he said there in verse 4 that he's going to strike every horse with panic, his riders with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every house of the peoples with blindness. So he says, horses are going to panic because they're suddenly uh, going to be blind. Uh, their riders are going to become distraught because they're blinded and their horses are out of control. Meanwhile, God is going to keep his own children, his own people, Judah, under his watchful eye. Now the Hebrew word for watchful there means an eye that is opened, an eye that's paying attention. In other words, the word there is meant to contrast with the blindness of the enemy's horses. Then you go on to verse 5. 
He says, Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, The inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. So God's going to do all of this against their enemies. He's going to give a cup of drunkenness to them. They're going to be like an immovable rock that's going to cause their enemies to get hurt against them. Their, the enemy's horses are going to be blinded. Their, their riders are going to be blinded and distraught. And, and then he says in verse 5 that because of all that, people are going to look at it uh, and, and God is going to use his deliverance and his protection during the battle to awaken a confidence and a faith on the part of the leaders of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many believe that at the beginning of the Battle of Armageddon, the people in that surrounding area of Judah are going to be against the people of Jerusalem. But then as they begin to see God working and God bringing victory to the city, they're going to become convinced that the inhabitants of Jerusalem, something's different about them. They've got the power of God upon them. And consequently, they're going to turn to the Lord as well. As a result of their new faith in the Lord of hosts, notice what verse 6 says. So verse 6 says, On that day I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves, and they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. So there in, in those verses there, he, he, he's uh, talking here uh, that the leaders of Judah are going to become like a fire pot in a wood pile, a flaming torch uh, among the sheaves. A fire pot was used to carry hot coals uh, to start a wood fire. The torch was used to light the dry grain on fire. And so he's saying that these leaders of Judah are going to have this new found power to defeat their enemies as they trust the Lord for their help. Verse 7 promises that those living in tents in the Judean countryside are going to be delivered first. So verse 7 says, The Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. So in other words, uh, the, the rest of the people who are part of God's people who are gathered around on the outsides of, as the country of Judah there, uh, he doesn't want them, them to be missed out because he's protecting uh, Jerusalem here. Uh, we see that he's promising uh, that those living in the tents in the Judean countryside are going to be delivered first, keeping, the, keeping the, the, the descendants of David, those living in Jerusalem, from becoming too proud and, and saying, we're better than you guys are out there. God protected us first. And so, uh, or that we're, he protected us above all the rest. And so that's why he also protects those out in the countryside living in the tents. In verse 8, though, notice what verse 8 says. Again, there's that phrase, on that day. The Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And so verse 8, the Lord promises that while the weakest inhabitant is going to fight with courage and, and the boldness that David himself fought with, the house of David is going to fight like the angel uh, of the Lord, the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity who had led Israel to great victories in the past, even killing 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night in the book of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 37. So then he goes on to verse 9, and verse 9 says, And on that day, there's that phrase one more time, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come 
against Jerusalem. And so there in that verse, he's summarizing how the Lord's going to work on behalf of his people in the battle of Armageddon. On that day, I'm going to set out to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Now those verses remind us that God's side always wins. Now there are some people who foolishly think that since the Lord always wins, we ought to work and to pray to get God on our side. And that's exactly backwards. You don't get God on your side, you get on God's side. You go back to the Old Testament and you remember about Joshua, the son of Nun. Uh, he learned that lesson in Joshua chapter 5. Joshua chapter 5 tells the story about what happened as Joshua began to lead the children of Israel uh, into the land of Canaan, to the promised land. The promised land wasn't an empty place. Uh, there were people that were living there. There were cities there. There were enemies there. There were battles that the children of Israel uh, had to face once they crossed the Jordan River. The first major city that they came up against was what? Jericho. Remember that? They came up against Jericho, the oldest city in the world. A fortress-like wall surrounded the city. Jericho had armaments. They had mighty men inside. They were ready to fight. This evil city stood against God and needed to be defeated in the name of the Lord. But Joshua, he's leading a group of people who have none of those resources. He doesn't know how in the world are we going to conquer this city Jericho. God has told us we're to go across this river and we're to attack this city and I don't know how in the world we're going to do this. We don't have the resources to be able to do this. We might have a big group of people but they're more stronger than we are. That city's fortified. And so as Joshua was trying to determine how to attack the city, he looks up, if you remember the passages there in Joshua chapter 5, Joshua, he was trying to determine how to attack the city. He looks up he sees this tall, strong warrior standing in front of him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua asks a question that would be a natural question for any of us faced with that kind of a situation in Joshua chapter 5 and verse 13. Here's what Joshua asks him. Are you with us or are you for our enemies? That's what I want to know. Are you with us? Are you for our enemies? Because that's going to determine what's going to happen next. Notice Joshua, when the man answers, what does the man say? Here's what he says in Joshua chapter 5 and verse 14. Neither. Whoa, wait a second. This is a mighty commander of the Lord's army. And he says, Neither. That's what he says, neither. I have now come as commander of the Lord's army. So Joshua, when he hears that, he bows before this man and prepares himself to obey the Lord's commander. That would be Joshua's key to victory. He understood the superior power of the Lord. And so he said... I'm not going to try to get you on my side. I just want to make sure I'm on your side. And so God's side always wins. Uh, through his great power, Jesus conquers. Because as we think about Jesus at his second coming, he's going to conquer all his enemies. And we need to understand, even now, God's side 
always win. So if you want to experience God's best for your life, for your family, for your business, for your ministry, for, uh, then, then you need to line yourself up with Him. Get on His side. Now understand that you can, go, uh, you can either go through life with, with God's wind at your back, uh, discovering through His Word, through prayer, through worship, through a submitted life, uh, what He wants for you, where He desires to take you, or you can decide you're going to turn against God and live with His wind always blowing in your face, always going the opposite direction that He has for you. God isn't going to change His direction just because you want to go against Him. When we're opposing Him, He wants us to change our direction. Our tendency, our tendency so often is to place our plan before God's plan. Whether it's a plan for our family, whether it's our personal life, whether it's our business, whether it's our ministry, often, so often we say, God, here's the life I want to live. I want you to bless that. I want you to bless my plans. And I'll serve you as long as you work on my terms. And God says, I don't work that way. His great power requires that we adjust ourselves to him. And as we see him conquering his enemies at the Battle of Armageddon, it reminds us that he wants to conquer our stubborn spirits so that we can turn to him and experience his victory. That's our second point. Thirdly, I want you to see this, his saving purpose. And this is where he leads us to because he's told us about his, his sovereign position. He created everything. He's the authority we answer to. We've seen his surpassing power. He wins. He conquers every time. Now we see his saving purpose. He redeems or he cleanses in, in verse 10 through chapter 13 and verse 1. So this final section of our chapter here shows us the work of Jesus Christ at the Battle of Armageddon to cleanse the hearts of the people of Israel. Notice verse 10 and what verse 10 says. He says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one, who mourn, as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. What a powerful verse that we're seeing here. Because this final section here shows us the work of Jesus Christ as he sees to cleanse the heart of the people. So verse 10 says that after God brings physical deliverance to the people of Jerusalem, he's going to pour out a spirit of grace, pleas for mercy or, or prayer on them. Now, so realizing their sin, it's all for the purpose of them to realize their sin, that the people would cry out to God for his forgiveness. You see, the reason for their repentance becomes clearer at the end of verse 10. Because verse 10 says that they will look on me when they look on me, whom they pierced. Now, that's a reference very clear for us on this side of Calvary, knowing that's a picture reference to Jesus Christ, to the Messiah, because that term usually carries the idea of piercing to the point of death. 
the piercing of Jesus Christ on the cross as those nails were driven into his hands and into his feet, that crown of thorns that was pierced his brow, and most notably the spear that pierced his side is, in, is indicated very strongly in this prophecy. So that, that Hebrew word that it says there, it says, when they look on me. Now we would just think, I'm looking at Ben up there. I see him with my eyes. That's not what he's talking about. The word for look there is the Hebrew word nabat. It means to look attentively. In other words, the nation is going to look at Jesus, not just physically as he returns on the earth, on the Mount of Olives, but also spiritually as they see his perfection and they see their own sinfulness and they turn from their sin to him. That's how intently they're looking at him, not just physically, but spiritually. And so as Israel looks at Jesus in the last day on that day, the people are going to realize something that had previously escaped them. They're going to realize their guilt in rejecting him. They're going to realize their need for his forgiveness. And suddenly the hearts of God's people that have been hardened against Jesus when they yelled out, crucify him, crucify him, their hearts that have been hardened against Jesus, not just for decades, but for centuries and even millennia, are going to be softened. And the rest of verse 10, as well as verse 11, describes their mourning and their grief that the nation's going to experience as they look upon Jesus. On that day, verse 11 begins. The mourning, the weeping in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Had, Hadad Renman in the plain of Megiddo. The mourning there is compared to that over the death of an only child, or as a firstborn in verse 10. The mourning is also compared to the mourning of Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo in verse 11. And that's referring to the public display of grief when King Josiah, who was the only godly king between the time of Hezekiah and Nebuchadnezzar, when, when Hadad Ramon was slain by Pharaoh Necho in 2 Kings chapter 23 and 2 Chronicles chapter 35. Hadad Ramon is the name of a pagan god of storms and fertility and probably refers to the place in the Valley of Megiddo where King Josiah died and was mourned. He says it's going to be like that. Verse 12 goes on and says, The land shall mourn. So not just the people, but the land itself shall mourn. Each family shall mourn by itself. The family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of the Shemites by itself and their wives by themselves. And all the families that are left, each by itself and their wives by themselves. So it describes there the mourning. That includes David's house that represents royalty. He includes Nathan's house. Who was Nathan? He was a prophet, so it includes the prophets. He, he, represent, he talks about Le, the Levi, Levites and Shimei's house. That represents the priesthood. All The whole land, from the royalty to the prophets to the priesthood, are going to be weeping and mourning. It shows that all of Israel, including the women, are going to share in the mourning at the sight of their pierced Messiah, indicating 
a far-reaching repentance on the part of Israel. That hasn't happened yet, has it? That's still something out there to happen at the second coming of Christ. And then you go to chapter 13 and verse 1. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Chapter 13, verse 1, is really a conclusion of all that's happened here in chapter 12, leading us to that culmination of, of what's to happen with the second coming of Christ. It pictures the gracious results here of Israel's repentance that God redeems. God promises to cleanse his people from two things, from sin, that refers to anything that separates us from God or anything that isn't right according to, according to God, and also impurity there. Uh, so it, it, it cleanses us from our, our sin and our uncleanness, which is anything in our lives that's broken. William Cowper wrote a hymn entitled, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. It's based on Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 1. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood Lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Dear dying lamb, the precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed ones of God be saved to sin no more. And then the last verse says this. Ere since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. And shall be till I die. And shall be till I die. Redeeming love has been my theme. And shall be till I die. The Jews... They had always tried to cleanse themselves with their, from their ceremonial uncleanliness physically by this ritual washing in the water. But understand this, sin and uncleanness can only be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. It's through His cleansing power that Jesus brings us salvation. It's through His cleansing power that He redeems us. The power of the gospel, the power of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross reaches to every part of our brokenness and makes us right before God. And so the most important reason to come to Jesus Christ 
is that deep need that we have uh, of sin in our lives. We're broken before God because of sin. And the only remedy for us is the blood of Jesus Christ, the only medicine that can make us right, that fountain that is filled with blood. When you look on the one who was pierced for your transgressions and you trust him as your savior, a river of life begins to flow that cleanses you of sin. But praise God, his saving work can cleanse you of uncleanness, of anything in your life that's broken, whether it's your marriage, whether it's your family, whether it's other relationships, whether it's your emotions, whether it's your attitude, whether it's your outlook on life. When we come to Jesus with all of our brokenness, whatever it is, by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he is able to save and to fix every part of who we are. What a powerful message of the second coming of Jesus Christ who redeems us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word and for your truth tonight. Lord, I pray that this message will go with us in the days and the weeks ahead. Lord, as we anticipate and we look forward to the coming of Christ again, Lord, we know that there are some things that come along with that also. That as we stand in your presence in the coming of Jesus Christ, as we stand in the face of death in our lives, knowing that one day we're going to stand before your throne of judgment, Lord, I pray that we would have done everything we needed to do by trusting in Jesus, trusting in his sacrifice for us on the cross in the precious blood that flows from the fountain, the only blood that can cleanse us. And Father, I pray that you would redeem us, that you would restore us. Father, I pray that you will, uh, even not just then, but even now, Lord, that we would follow you and be faithful to you and be the witness we need to be. Lord, if there's someone who's watched this tonight, I pray they've heard that you love them and that you care for them and you made a way where there seemed to be no way through all of their brokenness to be redeemed. And Father, I pray they would call out to you and trust in Jesus as their Lord and their Savior. And Lord, that you would come into their life and save them and help them to live for you all the days of their life. Lord, be with them tonight. And Father, I pray that they will publicly profess that faith follow through with believers' baptism, and begin growing in that walk with you. Lord, as believers, I pray that we will be stirred in our hearts tonight. Lord, knowing Jesus is coming again, and knowing that he's coming again, and knowing that we're getting closer and closer to the end of our lives, may we be more and more faithful than ever before to do all we need to do in sharing the gospel. May your will be, with, be, on, be on us and lead us and guide us your hand. Father, I pray that you'll show your grace and your mercy to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, thank you so much for joining with us uh, tonight there online. Look forward to seeing you this coming Sunday. We'll be back in full force Sunday morning, Sunday night. Uh, looking forward to a wonderful service then, uh, 1015 for our morning worship service, 6 o'clock for evening. Come and join us, any one of those. Come and join us for Sunday school if you can, 915 for Sunday school. Uh, we look forward to this Sunday. You have a safe week, and we'll look forward to seeing you then.